So the, all the black bands came out of Garfield High School. Quincy Jones went to Garfield. Jimi Hendrix went to Garfield. And so did Bruce Lee. So Garfield had a great um, music program. Philip, I want to thank you for taking this time to come here this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. I've watched one of your events. It was you do a birthday party every year. Yes. Right. And this was close by my home. It was in Megadon. And you put on an event. I mean, your music was really good. I mean, you're a keyboardist, and you had singers there. But I knew that you were the one that organized everything. That's right. It was all your event. You do this every year. How long have you been doing this? Um, I've been doing the birthday shows uh, for about 20 years. Maybe, yeah, about 20 years. Okay. Where were you born? I was born in Seattle, Washington. Okay. Did you, were you born in, I mean, did you grow up there? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. So, um, I'm, um, I'm fifth generation Chinese. Okay. And uh, part Native American. <laughs> and, uh, well, how, how, fifth generation, so that means the beginning, someone married an Indian. Um, the Chinese kids. Yes. Yeah. So, how did so that come? My great great grandfather was um, reportedly the first person, Chinese person in Seattle. Okay. And um, he married um, the daughter of Chief Seattle. So, you guys so went back, somebody did. We go back to the 1860s. You went back to 1860s? In Seattle, yeah. Okay. Do you know where in China he was from? Did you find uh, it's Toy Sun. Where's that? It's Kwangtung, it's, uh, which is off on the mainland close to Hong Kong. Okay. And that is Canton. So the big city there is, is Shenzhen. Shenzhen. Yeah. Okay. And you, so you know he came from there? Yeah. Most of the early uh, Chinese settlers who came to America are from that area. Okay. So uh, most of the railroad workers and this was the same. I was going to ask because he started working on the railroad, right? Yeah, he, he was uh, he was a labor contractor, okay. and so he would contract workers okay. and send them off to work in in teams. Mm -hmm. But when he came over, then he found this beautiful Indian he liked, and he married an Indian. That's right. Okay. Well, he had a bunch of wives because. Um, you know, back then, uh, wealthy Chinese could have as many wives as they wanted. Oh, so he was wealthy, being a contractor, I guess he was, yes. Yeah, so he um, he started the business and became wealthy, and he um, he had shops, and he built hotels and stuff like that in Chinatown, Seattle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then from that, that point, was he, is this your mother's side or your father's side? My mother's side. Your mother's so side. My father's side is third, I'm third generation. Okay. So, you grew up in Seattle until when? How, how um, old were you I left Seattle after high school when I was 19. Okay. Did you travel a lot when you were young? Did your parents take um, you No, I, when I left Seattle at age 19, that was the first time I had ever flown yet. You turned 66 this year? Or yeah, just last month. Just last month, so October I turned 70. So I'm just, that makes me four years older than you, right? Four years old. So, when you grew up, do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm the youngest of five, and... Um, so what is it, girl, boy, what is yeah, it? Yeah, girl's the oldest, and then I have three older brothers. And then you? I'm the youngest. Of four. Are you guys close? Yes, very close. Is that right? Yeah. So all of them are doing okay? Uh, yes. Um, my sister just passed. Oh, um, the first about one? Six the months old. She's the oldest. Okay. And she was also a musician. She was a uh, pianist and keyboardist. What about your mother and father? How are they doing? Um, my mother passed away when I was 13. And then my father passed away when he was 83, 10 years ago. Yeah. What did your father do when you moved? Um, my father was an architect. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a housewife, but she was also a pianist. Okay. So where did, is, that where you, is that where your music came from? Yeah. Um, my sister and I got the music DNA. And then uh, the other brothers got the uh, construction, you know, architecture. architecture. So they can like build, you know, drywall and remodel bathrooms and so stuff. So all and three of them? They, they, 
can all do some sort of construction. Do but they work they, together? Um, the two, my next oldest brother and my oldest brother um, are filmmakers, and they had a company um, called Wu Art International in New York. They filmed a lot of the early um, MTV videos. So they did um, Pearl Jam, Public Enemy, Living Color, uh, Tribe Called Quest, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, so Those are your brothers. The two of them got together. Two of them got together. And and, and was, it, was that the, the, the second, the two above you? Or was that the um, one after your sister? It's the one above me and the oldest brother. And the middle brother um, is retired, but he uh, spent his life in the fashion industry. Okay. Yeah. So he so he's so he's retired now. Are the other two brothers, your oldest and the the next one to you, are they still working together? Um, they split up, but the oldest brother is the president of um, Asian Cinevision. Okay. It's a it's a nonprofit that um, supports independent Asian American f films. Mm -hmm. And then the next brother up, he just retired, but. Um, he started his own business um, and he traveled the world making films mm -hmm. for um, you know, for 40 years. Right. And the other one that's in the fashion, you said he retired, so yeah. he just, do all of them have kids? Have you uh, been yes. Made, you've been made an uncle several times. Two of them um, have adopted children mm -hmm. and then um, the oldest brother has um, two daughters and they're both married. Okay. So tell me, when you were growing up, were you guys close as kids? I mean... Yeah, we were very close. Is that right? Yeah, so the next brother up, um, we went to school together from age, from my age three until age 19. So we were together every day. How many years between you two? Uh, two. What about you and your sister, the oldest sister that just passed? How many years between you and her? Six. Oh, oh so there were five kids yeah. in six years. Yeah, everybody's a year apart except for me and my and my next brother. Right, right. Yeah, so. Wow. Yeah, very close. So your family was known in Seattle. They knew, the, yeah. everyone knew the rules. My father was a community activist, and so he was very well known. He um, single-handedly raised money to open a, um, a nursing home for a Chinese-speaking um, elderly. Mm -hmm. And then he rehabilitated a few hotels in Chinatown and um, provided low-income housing for um, elderly um, Asians, not just Chinese, but Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese. Right. What was, well, because you were the youngest of four or five, you were yeah. the youngest of five, you were, real, you were well protected, so you didn't have to worry too much about school or anything else, did you? Um, we lived in kind of a dangerous neighborhood. Right. Um, so. It was called the Central District of Seattle, and it, it's a um, predominantly black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so um, we pretty much fighting and getting beat up all the time. Are you kidding me? No. Even as a kid? So we, we, didn't your brothers come to your aid a lot? They weren't always a, a, around. <laughs> and then, you know, we were out, outnumbered. But in, in the end, we got our way. We, we moved out of the Central District okay. and into the more Asian neighborhood. Right, because sure yeah. self-segregation, but yeah. segregated. Yeah. So once my brother and I changed high schools, then, then we had our own gang. You had your own yeah, gang? Asian, the Asian gang. You know. <laughs> and everybody was uh, into karate and kung fu back That's then. Right, so right, we, right. we finally got some backup. You had some backup, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, so up until what? So junior high school, your elementary school, junior high school, you guys were the minority in a black school? Yes. Um, my junior high school was 85% black. And my high school, first high school, was 80% um, black. And then when we moved high schools, finally. That school was 35% Asian wow. and, so you had a big and 30, 35% black and then right. the rest Some, of the, the rest of yeah. other people. Yeah. My so. goodness. So people really don't understand how you grew up. They can't imagine. No. Um, a lot of people look at my, at my exterior right. and they would never guess. They, never, they could never assume that your, all of your emotional... Um, time, they say that's from birth to age 12, was built up actually in a black community. Yes. So it's like, but you were a minority in a minority. 
That's right. Which is even harder. Yeah. So my father was active in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of lived like okay. cultural chame chameleons. Right, right. So we had our Chinese friends and our activities that we would do. Chinese New Year's, the dragon, the lion dance, you know. So the dragon, you, you have to uh, hold up a section of it and run around in zigzag. Right. Um, and then the lion dance, um, I was the tail. So lion dance is a two-man team. Right, okay. And then the guy who carries the head, he has to be really strong. Right. Because the head is heavy. Right. And the tail, you just get under the, the that uh, cloth, you right. know. Right. And uh, and you just dance around, try to try to match the steps of the guy in front of you. How old were you when you started doing that? Uh, about twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Did you like it? Were you happy that you got to do it? Oh yeah, yeah. That was fun. <laughs> and we had firecrackers, you know. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. So but then again, so you, like you said, you had to be a chameleon. So when you were in school, you just what what, what was your basically what was your idea? So you're going to schools all black. Of course, you're not afraid, or maybe you were. Do you feel like um, you're sitting constantly? It wasn't, there were, f there were a few bullies like there are everywhere, you know, but I had plenty of friends of all colors. Mm -hmm. um, and going to multicultural school was, was very enlightening because my neighborhood, there were a lot of artists and musicians in the neighborhood. And so um, a lot of the local musicians and artists, their children I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's a very interesting place to grow up. Okay, so let's, let's start elementary school. In elementary school, what did you like in elementary school? Um, I was always good at um, reading. Um, my uh, siblings taught me how to read when I was three. Okay. So I could, I could already read when I was three. So I was good at writing English, but not so good at uh, like math okay. or science. Did you, did you speak any Chinese in the home? No, um, my oldest siblings um, went to Chinese school and lasted less than a week. Yeah. So your parents wouldn't speak to you in Chinese at all? No, they used it as a secret language so they were, they were when, when they didn't want us to understand what they're talking about. So you never learned Chinese? Uh, I can curse and order food. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I learned that in high school when we moved to the Asian high school then uh, we, we made a lot of friends, right. and um, those kids, some of them could speak Chinese. Mm -hmm. So first thing they taught me how to do is curse. Right, okay. And, you know, um, and then um, we were always playing hooky and going to Chinatown to eat. Right, right, right. Yeah, so. But you had, but there's two groups now in Asia. I mean, in, in, in California, in, on the West Coast, the two biggest groups would be Chinese and Japanese. That's right. But you didn't mix. Oh, we did. You did? Yeah. So that was cool. As long as you were Asian, that was good. Yeah. Okay, what about the Filipino kids? Um, we would mix. They would? Yeah. Okay. Each race had their own little um, organizations. Right. You know, the um, Filipino Youth Organization. And every year um, there, there would be a, a parade. Uh, it was called Seafair. Okay. And so um, the, the Japanese had a drum and bugle corps. And then the Chinese had the dragon and the Chinese girls drill team. Mm. And the Filipino youth organization had uh, kind of a drill team too that, that would march. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to know um, the kids who went to school together on the south end where the Asians lived. Okay. Right. And, um, so it, it, it wasn't, see, we, everybody was kind of like into music. They and, were? Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, you know, dance, going to dances. Right, right, right. Um, right. Uh, going, to, uh, going to see bands. Right, there were right. a lot of local bands, like um, uh, roller skating rinks. That's right. That stuff like that. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the groups would mix. Right. Okay. The Asian, the, the different Asian groups would mix. It, it wasn't like uh, here in Asia. Right. 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 right, right. <laughs> yeah. It was very yeah. clear. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you had a lot of black friends too, obviously. I did. And especially because you're getting into music, and you can't be in music and not know black people. Well, <laughs> my can't. neighborhood um, had a lot of bands. Okay. And 
Now uh, this is now this is after you moved to the final high school. Or are you talking about? No, this school? is um, when when I was still a kid. Still a kid, okay. Yeah, and uh, so the, all the black bands came out of Garfield High School. Quincy Jones went to Garfield. Jimi Hendrix went to Garfield, and so did Bruce Lee. So Garfield had a great um, music program, a great big band, mm -hmm. and. Um, and a lot of local bands formed because there was a big um, club scene in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray Charles and Quincy Jones um, were hanging out together. They played together and they met each other when they were like 16 or 17 okay, right. with Clark Terry. Okay. And, um, and they worked all those clubs. Um, there's a book called Jackson Street After Dark mm -hmm. that chronicles the history of jazz in Seattle. So there were clubs all up and down, down the, uh, the strip, and right. Chinatown was next to um, the black community. Um, the black musicians who came, who, who toured, um, couldn't stay in the hotels downtown, and so they stayed in the Chinese hotels. They stayed in Chinatown, and there were jazz clubs in Chinatown too. Mm -hmm. um, so during Prohibition, there was a lot of. Um, speakeasies and Seattle was known as a wide open town okay. that um, uh, vice was pretty free. Subsequently there was work for bands and uh, the bands used to work five nights a week. I started doing that when I was in high school. Um, I, um, I was in the big band when I moved to the next high school their big band was number one in the nation and they recruited me into the big band. And the first um, chair sax player was Kenny G. And so... Um, we, we, that's in your band? Uh, this is in the school band. In the school band? The big band, yeah. So G, Kenny G went to the school you went to? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was after we moved to the Asian The Asian one, that yeah. was the next, so you went to that school? Yeah. Right. So that school was a lot more easygoing than Garfield. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah, Garfield was kind of wild. Right. <laughs> uh, during my early years, um, I used to hang out with the hippies because that was in like 1968. Yeah. Um, I was 12 years old. Right, right. And so the, uh, the music it was in full swing. Mm -hmm. So I went to see quite a lot of bands. Like my sister, when I was 12, she took me to the local um, hippie concert hall okay. and to see Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Right. And uh, that's when I picked up the harmonica when I saw that. What instruments can you play? Or do um, you play? Um, Go ahead, run them on. Mainly keyboards and my second instrument is harmonica. Mm -hmm. um, but I can play guitar and little drums and a little bass. I started playing flute for a while and I had some uh, congas and percussion. Okay. Um, but I pretty much uh, zeroed in on the keyboards. Right, that's your favorite? Yeah. So you love the keyboard. And you play any style of keyboard? Uh, jazz is not my strongest point. I what came is, up as what's your strongest? In, uh, funk and soul music. Okay. Yeah, so that was my roots. And uh, when I first got into my first bands, that's what we were playing. We were playing funk and soul. How old were you when you got in your first bands? Uh, Twelve. Now, now, the members, were they mostly Asian? Uh, no, they were uh, hippie guys. Hippie guys. White guys. And, and they uh, were playing funk? Um, actually, the first music I w was playing was blues. And this is why you went to Garfield? No, this is when I was in junior high in school. In junior high school. But that's still in the black, predominantly black community, right? Yeah, and we, you know, I knew many black musicians and, as well, right. and me who were members of some of the local bands. Right. But uh, the guys I was started playing with, the art teacher at the junior high school, had a son and he played all the instruments. So he didn't go to that school? He did. And he's white? Yeah. So, I mean... So how many white kids did you have in your first school? Because I... Um, there school. was, it was about, you know, 20% white. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, the, so all the kids you played from the band with went to the school you went to? Um, your first band? Yeah. Okay. They just happened to be the white kids in that so, school? Yeah. So we, you know, it was kind of a garage band and we would just play blues and uh, stuff by Cream or Santana, stuff Santana, like yeah, that. Santana, right. Yeah. 
And then when I, by the time I turned 14, I started playing a little jazz. Now when you were, did you play with these guys for two years? Yes, I did. Did you guys ever play any gigs, like some of the school dances or anything like that? Um, the art teacher used to throw parties, uh, like massive parties, hippie parties. And they were, there would be bands, back then at, at, at a party, there would be a band. Okay. And then um, either I would sit in with the band, and then my first gig was at the art teacher's house with her son for one of her parties. Okay. That was my first gig when and I you was played 14. Right. I played piano. And weren't you, ner I mean, were you nervous? No. Why weren't you nervous? Um, it was a party, you know. It was, it was a party and people were always playing at parties. Okay. You know, people would gather around a piano or there would be a band, right. you know, and I would sit in with the band on organ or piano or harmonica okay. when I was 12, 13, 14. Okay. And then um, when I was 15, that's when we moved to the, uh, down to the Asian part of town. Mm -hmm. And then I joined a, a black band. All right. Um, with guys from school. So my second gig was at a talent show. We rehearsed to go to a talent show. We drove all the way across Washington State to Walla Walla to play at a church talent show. Well, there must have been something you won if you won the talent show. Was there money involved? Yeah. There had to be something because you yeah. had to drive that far just to play in a talent show. Yeah. Okay. I forgot what it was. But, but there was something involved. Yeah. And you guys went there. Did you win? No, we didn't win. What um, place did you come in? We came in second place. Yeah, but the the, the guys who won, um, they were playing. They were kids, right? And they were playing Shaft, the theme from Shaft. <laughs> and they were yeah. good. Yeah, and they weren't so good, but they they, they the cuteness, kids. the cuteness. Okay, yeah, that was so that's what that's what made them win. So yeah. you guys should have won. I mean, you would have won had it been equal. Yeah, well, we no cute we there. had actually, you know, some, a couple. Uh, an adult in the band, mm. and then we were high school kids. So made a big difference. Yeah, so I think they didn't they didn't want to give it to a, the grown you know adult um, the, versus the kids. The kids yeah, just, yeah high school, you know junior high school kids playing Shaft. Yeah. But, so what did you guys it, play anyway? What did you guys play? Uh, we were playing songs by War okay. and Dyke and the Blazers. You know. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So then go on from there. So then you did that. So did. Um, after that, I joined um, the high school. Um, we formed a jazz combo. And the arranger at the high school was kind of a Quincy Jones kind of guy. He would make these big band arrangements. And he formed a small band. And we were doing kind of like CTI jazz, like Red Clay. Herbie Hancock stuff, okay. funk, like jazz funk. So we played at the NAMM show in Portland. I met uh, the inventor of the Fender Rhodes, um, Harold Rhodes. Uh, he let me try out his new piano. So that was a great experience. He wrote a letter to Berklee College of Music recommending that they give me a scholarship. But, just uh, from that time? Just from, just that. from that. That was uh, when I was 15. And, um, but I didn't get the scholarship. Okay. So at the end of that year, when I was 15, I got drafted into the big band. Mm -hmm. And at that time, um, the Franklin High School big band was number one in nation for these high school big band competitions. And so I got into that for a while. We formed a, I formed a little jazz group with Kenny G and another sax player and the guys in the big band. Wait, you formed it? Yeah. So how did you t t talk to me with the process of doing that? I had uh, like this idea, I wanted to do kind of like the Crusaders or Grover Washington kind of, you know, fusion kind of band. And these guys were good at, at playing kind of jazz funk. We formed this little band, it's called Energy. And um, we used to steal the PA from the, from the high school. So the, one of the sax players, had a, his father was a gardener, and he would pull the gardening truck up to the back door of the school, and we'd run in there and grab the PA and throw it in the gardening truck. And then we did some gigs on the weekends. Then the band um, leader found out 
he made everybody like give back the money. That you made as a result of that. Yeah, and then I I said, no, I'm not giving back the money because I earned it, you know. So, um, it, I quit. I quit the big band. And right at that time, I was recruited into a professional band. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started playing um, five nights a week in, in clubs. Now, how old were you um, now? How old were you now? 16. 16, okay. Yeah. When I graduated high school, I went to Seattle Community College. I uh, started taking music theory. And that was the first music lessons I, I'd ever taken. So um, I learned by, by, by ear. By ear. Right. And then I didn't start reading music until college mm -hmm. because um, when they recruited me in the big band, they never like taught me anything, but I could already play. So they would just, you know, they, they needed me because I was the best pianist in, in the school. They didn't teach me anything. They would just that you do play, you do. yeah. This is, the, this is what's good, melody's and, gonna be. And because I was the star player in the big band, um, I was able to get like four music classes a day, and then I never showed up for any of them, but I still get A's. Pretty much in high school, we weren't, we, me and my friends, we were never in school. We would go to school as, as a meetup point, and then leave. And then I'd come back. Your parents didn't know this. I'd come back to school, a couple classes, you know, the ones that I liked. I'd come after school for big band practice because big band was not a class. It was just uh, an activity. I think something a lot of people won't know, younger people won't understand how open our school campuses were during that time. They weren't closed. There may be one auditorium door would be closed, but basically you could get in and out of the schools very easily. We could roam in and out of the music rooms freely and practice when we wanted to. Or we could go into the auditorium. The auditorium was always open in there and there was a piano in there. Mm -hmm. So um, it was pretty loose. That's right. And um, I actually graduated without passing math. I think they just like, just go, okay? Just get <laughs> out of here. And when I got to college, in first day of school in my music theory class, there was a guitarist from a popular band and they had just broken up. He heard me playing and he said, we want to recruit you um, into our band. And uh, these guys were like adults. They were 24, I was 19. And they said, okay, we want Kenny G. We want you, Kenny G, and the drummer, who was the MVP. This guy played like Billy Cobham when he was in high school. Mm -hmm. And so we reformed this band and it was called Cold, Bold, and Together. What was the ethnicity of the group? Um, it was all black except for me and Kenny. And they had had records out. And so we started As, making... What was the name of the group when they had records out? Cold, Bold, and Together. Oh, so it's continued to it's be a, that name. Yeah. You were just together. Yeah. So we formed a new Cold, Bold, and Together. And it was like a super group because Kenny was like, you know, he was so... Nobody knew so, Kenny G at that time. They knew him as the star player of the Franklin High School jazz right. band. But I mean, the world did not know Kenny no, G yet. No, So we became little superstars in our, in our hometown because we had a number one record on the Soul Station. Did you get paid for all this too? Yeah. We were, we were making, we were gigging all the time. You know, we so were you playing the money. clubs five nights a week right. and going, going to college. And Kenny st uh, was going to U University of Washington. And the rest of us were going to um, the com community college. college right. Yeah. So something happened. Um, I went to see Roy Ayers in, at the local jazz club. And um, he asked me if, if I wanted to sit in. And so I sat in with him because he had just fired his keyboard player. But he had keyboards that he was jumping back and forth from the vibes. And then he would play keyboard and sing. He said, hey, I know you because I had met him uh, a couple of years previous when he came to a little club. And, um, and I had s sat in with him at that time. And he said, hey, I know you, you wanna play? And I was like, yeah. He says, D uh, do you know any of my music? And I said, I know all of your music. I did, and so, cause I was a fan. So I sat in and um, everything went well. And he said, well, uh, come back tomorrow. And he kept saying, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. 
And he, then he said, I want you to come to rehearsal because we rehearse every day at four o'clock. And I was like, and I showed up every day at four o'clock and nobody ever showed up for a rehearsal. They would party all night and sleep all day. But you're the one, you're right there. Right? But I'm, I'm, I'm there. And then one day he said, um, come down and meet me at the club. And um, so I went there and it was just him and I. And he said, I want you to transcribe this song for me. So it was a Gino Vanelli song. And so he played the cassette and I, I picked out the chords and wrote him a, a, a chart. And I didn't know, but the, he, was gonna, he was gonna record that song and he needed someone to write him a chart. And so, and then he said, um, can you swing? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, play blues and F. One, two, one, two, three, four. And then I, I played and he was playing vibes. And then after that, he said, um, can you join my band and move to New York? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> when, when are we leaving? No, you're still 19. I'm still 19. Yeah. Okay. A few days later, I go home for dinner and my, my father says, uh, oh, I spoke to Roy Ayers yesterday. And I said, and I told him, where's the contract for my son? And he said, oh, we don't do contracts. And my dad said, okay, then my son, um, he can't go to go play with you or join your band. And Roy said, okay. And he left town. And um, Dad, you said what? <laughs> uh, they went to L.A., right? I said, wait a minute. I went to L.A. and because my brother had just moved there to go to college, right? So I just showed up at my brother's house. Your dad didn't know you left? No, I didn't tell anybody. I just left. Right. And, uh, and so me and my brother tracked down Roy Ayers. And Roy saw me say, hey, you going to play? And I was like, yeah. And so I went and sat in with him. Um, at Concerts by the Sea, and then at the end uh, of the show, I said, don't listen to my dad, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm ready, you know, pretty much make my own decision. He said, okay, come tomorrow night, and we're at the Starwood. And so um, Roger and I went, my brother Roger and I went to Starwood, and there was this, uh, this young kid who was uh, playing that night with Roy, and this guy was fantastic. And, it, and he said, how you doing? I'm, uh, my name's Greg Fillingaines. And I was like, man, how, did, how are you so bad? He says, um, the Motown guys taught me. The guys who play at, at Motown taught me um, how to, you know, because he could work the synthesizers and everything and, so you, you know, clavinet. So he said, how are you so bad? You mean bad in a good way? Yeah. 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 Badass. Right. How are you so yeah. badass? Yeah. Wow. And, um, but he was playing with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder pulled him out of high school. And so we were exactly the same age. And um, so Roy wanted to steal him from Stevie, but Stevie was paying retainer. Then, um, so I was the, the standby. So after, the, after that show, he said, I'm recording, um, come to the studio. So Roger and I went to the studio. Roger was showing the guys how to do Kung Fu. You know, because Roger was really like, my brother was a kung fu monster. Yeah. So they were playing, Ricky Lawson was playing drums, and Byron Miller was playing bass, and Ronnie Drayton was playing guitar. These guys all went on to become like superstars later, but this is, you know, we're all like, they're all the same age as me. They're 19, 20, and they kept saying, the guys kept saying, why don't you let Philip play? Why don't you let Philip play? Because I was watching, right? And so finally he said, okay. And so I went in the studio and I ended up playing three songs. Those songs ended up on uh, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. So that was my first like world uh, class recording session. And then after that, um, Roy said, okay, go home. I'll send you a plane ticket. Go home and wait. I'll send you a plane ticket. And then um, when I got home, the guys from Cobalt Together were waiting. They all came to my house and they're like, you can't leave. And I was like, guys, this is like, you know, this is like my, my opportunity, you know, I've got to take this. He's like, no, we're going we're, we're gonna to make it, you know, we're going to be the next uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. And I was like, um, sorry guys, I got to go. And it had to be hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, lo and behold, the plane ticket came, and I got on my first plane ride and went to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then the first night, um, first we went to the club and did a, our uh, sound check rehearsal. And as I'm walking out, there's a guy at the bar, and he says, "Hey, um, hi, I'm Kenny Burrell." And I was like, man, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. He says, man, you're really cool. I've never seen a Chinese piano player before. <laughs> we go back to the hotel, get our dinner, come back to the club, and we're playing the show. And this lady just starts wandering out on stage, right? Our roadie uh, ran up and he was going to grab her and throw her off the stage. And Byron said, no, no, that's Flora Purim. And so she sat in, and then um, another guy came to sit in, and um, he was a drummer, and his name was Steve Cobb. And like this is guy um, who played on the records with Ramsey Lewis, and he later he ended up being the drummer, but at that time, um, Ricky had left in between the time that I went home to wait for my plane ticket and they had another guy was playing. So Ricky at that time, Quincy pulled him out of Roy's band to play with the Brothers Johnson. And so that was the beginning of Ricky's journey because you know Ricky played with Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Steely Dan, Byron played with Luther Vandross, George Duke, you know Santana, the Crusaders. So all these guys like Roy's band was kind of like an incubator for like people who would, who would step up to some, you know, other things. And it was for me too. And so I get off the stage, I'm all, you know, adrenaline is all high and I go up to the dressing room. I'm the first one in the dressing room and Donnie Hathaway is sitting there. And I'm like, man, I was like, dear Donnie Hathaway. He's like, is it all right if I can be in here with you all? I was like, are you kidding? Dear God, you know, it's, it's like God is here. So that was my first night on the road. Wow. And so it, the, everything from that point on was all like, wow, you Just know. Just kept on coming. Yeah. After Chicago, mm -hmm. tell me, when did you start traveling outside of the U.S.? How old were you when that happened? Um, I didn't. Roy never left the U.S. while I was with him. Mm -hmm. um, so How long were you with him? I was with him for two years. Two years, okay. Uh, the first time I left uh, the U.S., I was with Patti LaBelle. And uh, we went to Paris and London. Yeah, and that was a riot. And from Roy Ayers, you met Patti LaBelle? No, from Roy Ayers, um, uh, I was recruited to play with Ashford and Simpson. Okay, and then um, what? And, um, Is that where Patty LaBelle met you? Um, no, I, Patty had seen me. We were on uh, Soundscape together with R uh, Roy Ayers and Patty LaBelle on the same TV show. So I had met uh, her musicians at that time. I met a, a drummer named Billy Johnson. And Billy was from Dexter Wansel's band. And then he was also playing with Noel Pointer. And Noel, um, so he would come up to New York. To, uh, he was from Philadelphia. So Patty's band was uh, Philadelphia based. And so was Dexter Wansel, Grover Washington. Patty um, was forming a new band. And so uh, she hired Billy. And then uh, the guitarist was uh, Ron Smith. And they were looking for a keyboard player. And so uh, Billy and Ron recommended me. So I went down to audition and then I ended up getting the job. Actually, there's a story here. Uh, I was in LA producing my sister's band and I was waiting to go to the first rehearsal of Patti LaBelle. And so a um, phone call came for me and it was uh, Bud Ellison. He was Patti's um, uh, musical director and he said, yeah, what we've done is you're going to be replacing the horn section and then playing uh, keyboards. And so we have, we have everything written out. And I was like, um, I need to tell you something. I'm not a great reader. And he said, you're not a great reader. 
we'll hire people who can't read, you know, so forget it. And I was like, oops, okay. So I was kind of down. So I had a girlfriend in Nashville. I went to visit my girlfriend. And nobody knew where it was, right? And then finally, somebody tracked me down and, and said, um, uh, you have to get to Philadelphia right away. Because when they heard what Bud said, um, they said, what? You, you, you fired him before, you know, he's, they, they're like, they, he's the baddest keyboard player you can find. And so, you know, they were panicking because nobody knew where it was. So when I got there, I think everything was great. And I said, um, um, I'm going to have to go back to Ashford and Simpson uh, when they do their summer tour. And so um, they said, okay, we'll hire somebody to, to sub for you while you're gone. And so they had these auditions and Bud was crazy. And so he would have the uh, like a whole room full of keyboard players and then they would start playing. And the first time that they made a mistake, he would stop the band and go, next. <laughs> And he went through the whole day and didn't hire one. I think what happened is that all these guys were readers, but they had two charts. And you can't read two charts at the same time. One had the horn parts and the other had the string parts. But I learned everything by ear. Right, so you could hear So, them you know, because it's, it's like a dance. That's right, it It's is. a routine. Right. So if you're doing this, you, gotta, you have to feel it. That's right. Yeah. So... Um, that, that band was a riot. And so when we went to um, Paris, everybody was like pranking, phone pranking each other with, with fake French accents. And it was crazy. And we did this, uh, we did an anniversary at a club called Le Palace, which is like the Studio 54 of Paris. And so everybody was, you know, all the elite, uh, you know, of Paris were, were there. And so Patty was kind of like, um, she was kind of like the gay um, favorite artist of gay people. And so there were like transvestites and, you know, um, uh, like six uh, strong men all oiled up, uh, like only wearing like, you know, thongs. Right. They carried this big cake out, which was a huge penis. And then they lit up this huge penis fireworks inside there. And it, the whole place filled up with smoke. And people were breaking their glasses, like drinking and breaking their glasses. And it was like, it was wild. So that was really fun to play with Patty because he, there's always like transvestites and you know, and, and like, something interesting. yeah, that's interesting stuff. So, so that's your first time leaving the States is going with Patti LaBelle and going to Paris. Yeah. Where was it after that? Where was the next country we, you went to? We went to London, played at the Hammersmith Odeon. Mm -hmm. And that was great too, first time in London. Yeah, it was a grand time. And you're probably in your 20s now? Yeah, I was 22 at that time. 22. Yeah. When would you say was the time when you really hit it big, you felt like, I'm here, I made it. Frankie Beverly, of Frankie Beverly and Mace, Mace featuring Frankie Beverly. So he um, fired like most of his band, except for the core members, and he wanted his members to come from Philadelphia because they're from Philly, all the Mace guys are from Philly. And so he cannibalized Patti LaBelle's band. So first he took the guitarist, Ron Smith, and then he took the drummer, Billy Johnson, and then he, they needed a keyboard player. So Billy and Ron um, recruited me. And then when I got there, I was like, okay, this, this is a whole nother level here. Everybody had Porsches, you know, everybody had new cars. He did we well, had, he made sure his band did well. At that time, okay. yeah. Right. Um, we had bodyguards, we had valets, we had limos, um, you know, so the luxury level went way up. And that's what you felt like? Yeah. How old were you at that time? 23, 
23. Yeah. Did you get a Porsche? No, I didn't. I didn't, okay. I didn't get a car. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I found out later that there were different levels of uh, pay scale. Okay. And I was at the bottom. <laughs> the, the guys, the, the veterans, they were getting, you know. Really big. Yeah. And, uh, but I was getting paid. So that was, that was the, the pinnacle of luxury for, for me at yeah, that at time. time. Wow. Yeah. I have a feeling we're going to have to do more than one podcast with you if you grant me that because okay. you have stories that I need to hear and I need to get out there. Because <laughs> you've played, I would, I would like to ask this question. Who haven't you played with that you wish you'd gotten a chance to play with? There were a couple things I got called for that I couldn't do. One was Chaka Khan and the other one was George Duke. Uh, I wanted to play with, with Earth, Wind & Fire, um, but after, that changed after they changed. Like after, um, they kind of went through this period where I didn't, I didn't dig the records anymore. That was after they had all the biggest hits. And they were starting to kind of level off and change members. But I was a big Earth, Wind & Fire fan, huge. Um, one dream that came true was uh, I got called to play with Tower Power because I was, I used to just eat, sleep, and drink Tower Power. I mean, I was totally into it. And I would have liked to play with Santana. I would love to play with some of the rock, with rock guys. Like who? Actually, I, um, I got called to audition for the Stones, um, but they ended up uh, not hiring another keyboard player. So the position did not materialize. Mm -hmm. But I, I was ready. Oh, that meant something. Mick <laughs> yeah. Jagger? That was in 1994. So, yeah, that would have been great because all my buddies, I mean, all the people who back up the Stones are all my buddies. Okay. The bass player, Daryl Jones, and now Steve Jordan is playing with them after Bernard Fowler, Lisa Fisher, Cindy Mizell. I know all those guys. So I was like, oh, please. I'd love to do that. That would be like the time that I moved to New York was like 1976, mm -hmm. and that was right when, it, you know, in terms of music, that was like a golden age, and so, you know, pretty much met everybody. I was born at a very fortunate time. First of all, how long have you been in Japan? I've been in Japan for 24 years. 24 years. Yeah. Do you plan on continuing to be in Japan? Or? Yes, I do. You do. Yeah, you like I, it that much. Yeah. Um, what brought you here? I was um, offered a position to produce uh, CDs for Toshiba EMI, and um, my wife at that time was was Japanese, and she had just gotten signed to Toshiba EMI, mm. and so I was getting a little tired of the road. That was my twenty third year on the road. How old were you at this time? At uh, 41. Okay, 40. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's when you first came to Japan, you were 41? Yeah. Okay. So you stayed here, you've stayed here since? I have. Right. So um, it kind of made me an, a new career because as hip-hop took, took over the music business, it felt like the music business getting kind of yucky. I was doing sessions, getting stiffed by record companies. Like not get the, not wanting to pay you. Like these are record companies, and I would do stuff, and it started, and then like living in a black world started changing too after the crack epidemic. Started getting a little more like dicey, mm -hmm. and you know, because all those years it was a big love fest from '76 all the way through the '90s. It's like hey woo, hey woo, hey that's woo, yeah yeah, and then. By the mid-90s, I started feeling like a little different, you know, no, none of these people really knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And so I almost got into like weird situations on, you know, going to like Cincinnati, Cleveland, you know, mm -hmm. some of these cities and, and it was like, and I'd be out and about and, and, and they'd be like, what are, you, what are you doing here? You know, mm -hmm. you know, it's like getting tired of the road. You know, we, it, like you'd be on a bus, 30 hours is nothing. 30 hours on a bus is nothing. 
you know, an average 12 hours on a bus. You, know, you get tired of that carbon monoxide smell, you know. Sometimes there's nothing to eat, is but, but McDonald's or, you know, or bad um, hotel food. You know, I'm a spoiled brat when it comes to eating. You know, I gotta have good food. And that's one reason why I love it here. Mm -hmm. The food, you'll never pretty much eat, eat bad food. Yeah, so I love Japan. I love the lifestyle. That leads me to my, my final question when I come to at the end. We, we are going to do some more podcasts, though. I, like, I know I can get in even deeper <laughs> with what we have to talk about because I know you have stories behind every gig you've had, basically, and all the people you've dealt with. It's quite vast. I like to ask people this at the end of their podcast. What do you consider to be a good life in Japan? I think I don't really need to be like extravagant or, or um, really wealthy. I think that sometimes that having too much money can, be, um, can bring on too much responsibility. And I like having a freedom to just keep it within the music live comfortably so um, that's what I like about uh, living here is that um, my lifestyle is is comfortable and pleasant um, I have a I have a lot of friends I'm still active in the music business whereas I think this city enables that because there are so many opportunities here still and opportunities present themselves even though I'm I'm 66. So I've I've gotten into teaching now and really love it. Um, I think that will be a way for me to be active when, uh, as I retire. And of course you can't retire as a musician, but um, there's still like, uh, take Harumo for instance. Harumo is, is like a virtuoso and a lot of the young musicians that I semi-mentor or include in my activities are 40 years younger than me. And so, you know, I can, I can play places that people come and see me. Uh, I'm recording, writing songs. I, I couldn't ask for it better. And, uh, you know, I prefer living a lifestyle here at, uh, than the States. So, for now, yeah, for now, the, the, there's a lot to talk about, um, it, the balances, yeah. Phil, I want to thank you so much. All right, thank you very much. Yes. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all unknown, so continue to reach for the stars, because you're too blessed to be stressed.